0: It out. It appears that even though it'll be wet when we leave here today, it will uh, be above freezing, uh, Lord willing. But uh, it's so good to be back in the pulpit uh, this year and to begin uh, a new series today. So if you would, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Essentially, open it up to the middle. If you find Psalms, go to the right Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going to be for the next 10 to 11 weeks. Um, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you turn, how many of you are familiar with uh, the former long-running Broadway show, now uh, 2005 movie Rent? Anybody familiar with that? Some of you are, some of you aren't. It's kind of what I expected. Well, for those of you who are not, Rent tells the story of, of a group of impoverished young artists who are struggling to survive struggling to to create a life in Manhattan's Lower East Village during the height of the HIV and AIDS uh, epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s. So hopefully you'll get some kind of context, uh, um, idea of the context kind of surrounding that story from just that little bit of information and definitely not a a family-friendly show or context, but, but I bring it up as an illustration because Rent is a... It's a tragic story, like many are, but Rent is a tragic story of people, like so many other people, searching for meaning and value in life in a a chaotic and broken world. Just listen to uh, some of the lyrics from its most famous song. 525,600 minutes. 525,000 moments so dear. 525,600 minutes, how do you measure, measure a year in daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, and in miles, in laughter, and strife? In 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year in a life? The entire song is a contemplative question, asking how do you you quantify the value of of a year in someone's life? How do you measure its worth? How do you measure its value? But like so many today, the the characters in in Rent, while asking the right question, look for the answer in, in all of the wrong places as they determine that we must embrace life and pursue it to its fullest, because there's no day but today. Which may sound good, right? But it's the equivalent of what we often hear of, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a completely secular way of, of viewing the world. But again, just because the answer is wrong, it doesn't mean that the question is Now, the question is a very important question, this this question of meaning and value. One, each one of us have probably asked in one way or another throughout the course of our life, and if we haven't, then we should. How do we measure the value of a year? Or more importantly, how do we measure the value of a life, a life lived? When our eulogy is read and our Words are spoken at a, or words are spoken about us at our funeral. What will be said of us? What will be the lasting impressions that that we leave upon this this earth and those that we leave behind? And more importantly, will the life that we lived will it matter ten thousand years from now, twenty thousand years from now? Well, that's the question that the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to help us answer. So let's turn there together to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and begin in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now as we read these opening 11 verses, they're sobering, aren't they? All is vanity. What has been is what will be. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no remembrance. And you're sitting there and you're like, man, Jeremy, could you have picked a more encouraging book to start this year? I mean, we just came out of revelation and judgment. And now you're going to go here? Bear with me. And first, let's look at the context. the Meaning of that was the context of the author. Who is the author of Ecclesiastes? As there is some mystery surrounding his identity, since he's never actually mentioned by name within this book, but thankfully verse 1 gives us a pretty significant clue as to his identity, saying these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, which naturally leads most readers to believe that the author is, is who? Solomon, King Solomon, David's son. Now, Now, some are still not convinced, and that's an argument for another day, but I believe verse 16 helps back this up. As the author says, I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why is this little bit of information important? Well, because Solomon, when given an opportunity to ask for anything he wanted, he asked for what? Wisdom, and he became the wisest man other than Jesus to ever live. So without any going into any more detail there, I believe Solomon is the human author of this book. And I believe he wrote Ecclesiastes in the latter years of his life, the later years. After he lived a, a life, after he obtained all of this world had had to offer, embraced life and pursued it to its fullest. Lived as though there was no day but today and still found no lasting satisfaction in it, he wrote this. Reflecting back on the wisdom provided by the, the one shepherd, as chapter 12 will tell us, the one shepherd being the true author of this book and every book within the scriptures. But in offering that wisdom, he, he says these words to his original listeners and he writes these words and pens these words for us today. Look with me at verse 2 again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Look back with me here again into in verse chapter 12, verse 8. Just kind of opening from the beginning of the book, and just look with me to the end of the book for a moment. And he closed the same way that he opens. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. So he opens and he closes with these words, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Now I'm curious, how many of your Bibles say something different than the word vanity? Just by a show of hands, how many, if any, say something different? Okay, a few of you have it different. Maybe you even grew up hearing it different than that, and that's because there's a few different translations who word this differently. The NIV, for example, was widely used and uh, during a significant season for many, my life included, and. The New Living Translation, both of those, NIV and New Living, both translate it as saying meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then for those of you who are using a Christian standard Bible, it reads, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. But regardless of the translation that you have, it appears that the preacher, the teacher here, is looking back upon his life of plenty, a life of wisdom and wealth and everything that this world has to offer. And he's saying, it's empty. It's valueless. It's meaningless, pointless. It's essentially, that's the Jeremy paraphrased version. And it appears he's saying this in reference to all of it, absolutely everything, all is vanity. But now the question that I have when I read this, and I hope that you have, is how is this true? How is this true? I mean, is that really what he means, that everything in life, all of it, has no meaning whatsoever? Is that really what he's saying? Does it mean even that which is godly and good is just vanity? Meaningless? And if so, honestly, how does that make any sense? Right? Well, this is where we need to take a closer look at the Hebrew word that is translated here as vanity, meaningless, futile. As it literally means breath. Or vapor. Life is a breath. Life is a vapor. So step out into the cold. You can do this as you leave today. Many of you may be feeling like you're cold enough in this room to do this very thing. You, you breathe out, and what can you see in front of you? The breath, right? Your, your breath, and it's here one moment, and it's what? It's gone the next. You, you, you have a campfire around, and everybody's gathered around. That would be nice, too, would it not? to be able to gather around the campfire and the smoke comes up from the campfire and what happens to that smoke it's here one moment and it's gone the next it's a vapor no sooner does it rise it's gone into the wind the preacher here teaching his listeners what about life through his word choice that life is a vapor life is a breath It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And friends, the older we get, the more this makes sense, doesn't it? You look back on your life after a certain age and it's like, where did it go? Like, where did all the time go? The the youthfulness that we try so hard to hold on to is ever more fleeting with the passing of time, like the passing of the wind. It's just gone. You can't be held on to no matter how hard we try, and people try. As we're, every, we're reminded every time we look in the mirror of how fast time is passing. Joan Collins, the 88-year-old the eight, actress, once said that the problem with physical beauty is that it's like being born rich and becoming poor the older you get. There's a lot of truth in that statement from a physical standpoint. And it happens in a blink. Life passing just in a blink of an eye. How does that song go? It happens in a blink. It happens in a flash. It happens in the time it took to to look back. I try to hold on tight, but there's no stopping time. What is it I've done with my life? You just listen to a lot of popular songs, regardless of genre, and you're going to find Ecclesiastes questions all throughout them. How many of us, regardless of age, have asked these very questions? What have I done with my life? Time's passing so quickly. Oh, friends, this is the reason for midlife crises. You come to the middle of your life and you look back and you're like, I thought I'd have more time. All these plans and all these dreams going yet unfulfilled or or worse yet. The things that you have spent, we have spent a lifetime working for and striving for and laboring for, still haven't brought the fulfillment and happiness you so set, desperately desire. The children whom you so deeply love and rightfully so, the ones that you long for and prayed for and strive for under many trials in some cases, either already have or, or will grow up in a blink they'll be grown before you even know it every season passing so so very quickly and again you're asking where did the time go each one of these moments serving as a reminder that life is a vapor it's a breath as james 4:14 4, says we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Thus the question, how do we make the most of the time that we've been given? How do we make every minute count? Because this is the, the area that I, where the idea of meaningless comes into play. Just look with me at verse 3 and the question the preacher asks after declaring all is vanity. He asks a very important question. What does man gain... By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What do we get from all the work that we do on this earth? And the key word to his question here, or words to his question here, are at which he toils under the sun. What do we get from all the work we do under the sun? The sun, A phrase that we're going to find nearly 30 times throughout the 12 chapters of this book. So it's definitely important for us to, to ask, okay, what does he mean by under the sun? See, what the preacher is doing here is he's addressing listeners, all of us who, in this case, his particular audience, but it extends broadly, whose view of the world is bound so many times by the horizons of this world. A life that's lived underneath the sun, a life that has lived in a fallen world. And for so many, they're not thinking beyond it. But now let's be clear. His listeners are not atheists. They believe in God, would, by all accounts, in many accounts, be considered very religious people, but the way that they're seeing a living life is ground level. It's between the horizons. It's in the here and now. It doesn't extend any further. It's just this world only, and that's it. May claim a belief in God with their lips, but how they live their life tells a totally different story. We see the same thing today. This may very well describe the way that you're presently living your life, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, you, you claim to believe in God. You, you bring your family to church, or you're tuning in right now on this rainy day from home. You're doing things that this world and those around you would, would deem as good and noble. But in the end, the mist of your life is nothing more than a chasing after the wind of a fallen world. Everything you've worked so hard to gain and acquire, for just being honest, it'll be gone in a blink of an eye. And to what end? To what end? See, the point the preacher is about to drive home throughout this book is that a life lived under the sun is meaningless. Because the answer to his question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun, is nothing. We gain nothing. A lifetime of work lived only under the sun amounts to nothing in the end. And he drives his point home by highlighting the repetitions of life. Look again at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. It's every single day, right? The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man man, cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing that which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. And I read that again because it's so true, isn't it? The repetitions of life. The earth remains forever, which will be something to explore and talk about further, but the names and the the faces of those who dwell on earth are here but a brief moment, a breath, and they're gone. Replaced by a new generation that follows. Work for however many years in your company or your organization. Pour everything you have into it. Blood, sweat, and tears. You leave, what happens? You're replaced by someone new. The reality is that those who come after you will have no idea who you are. Who you even are. Sure, they may hear your name, they may hear some stories, but those will fade over time. My dad worked at the same factory for over 40 years. Now, every new hire that comes in has no idea who he was. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. By a show of hands, and I know that can be scary at times, please don't be afraid to respond, all right? It would be helpful for you to respond. This isn't a trick. Uh, This isn't even where you can be right or wrong here. It's just being honest with your your answer. So no gotcha questions here. Just an honest response to help with an illustration. How many of you have met, have never met, Zach Robinson? Just raise your hand if you've never met Zach Robinson. Look around and just see the hands. How many of you have no idea who I'm talking about when I say Zach Robinson? Okay, several different hands that go up. Now, how many of you, same thing, raise your hand if if you know Drew Dukes. All right, put your hands down. How many of you have no idea who Drew Dukes is? All right. How many of you would know who Doug Campbell is? How many of you have no idea who Doug Campbell is? How about Jason Smith? Anybody know who Jason Smith is? A few of you. How many of you have no idea who Jason Smith is? What about Larry Stevens? How many of you know Larry Stevens? How many of you have no idea who Larry Stevens is? You see how more and more hands progressively go up around the room. See, Zach Robinson, he was our pastoral assistant um, working with our young adults and our youth for the better part of three years and went to seminary a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So he has been only gone a year and a half, and yet there are those among us who have no idea who Zach Robinson is. You know, we look here, and everyone else that I mentioned are, are all former teaching pastors that were prior to me. Every one of them being the, the, preaching, the teaching pastors who came before me. Three of whom, if they walked in this room right now, I would join you in not knowing who they were. That you could be them and I would not know that it was you that was sitting out there because I have no idea who these individuals are. A powerful reminder to me and hopefully to every pastor that every pastor is an interim pastor. Even the pastor who serves a church faithfully for 30 or 40 years, he will someday be replaced. Same with any position, right? The doctor you loved shared so much with, knew so much about you, he's going to retire, and someone's going to take his position that doesn't even look old enough to drive. Teacher, many of you are teachers. You're going to teach the same curriculum to a different group of students, to the same grade, or thereabouts, year after year after year after year. You're going to retire... And then some young 20-something is going to come in and take your place and move forward. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. But Jeremy, look at all the new stuff in the world and all the inventions in the world. Sure, new, new inventions will come. Just in my lifetime, I see the progression from a cord, corded phone mounted on the wall. You know when you had a phone call and you had to be on it, have it on your shoulder, cord on, you'd wrap it around, it gets tangled, it's all over your desk. you get hiding away from your parents, so they're not able to listen in on your call. Remember that one? Ah, but then it progressed to the cordless phone with a long antenna that you could use for a sword fight, right? Oh, and then car phones came into play. Like the big clunky ones a la Zach Morris. How many of you know Zach Morris? How many of you have no idea who Zach Morris is? There's no excuse for this row right here not to know who Zach Morris is. You need cultural education. And then came the flip phone. How many of you have no idea what a flip phone is? So, I mean, we're getting to that point. But flip phones and text messaging... Calling after 9 p.m. to save your minutes, right? But you're calling, you're texting one another, and then you could actually play games on a phone. Snake, like I loved Snake. Then you got iPhones, FaceTime. Oh, where we've been over the last few years without FaceTime, right? And who knows what the future holds when it comes to this type of technology. But it's all forms of communication. The technology may be new, but what it's aimed to accomplish isn't. It's more effective than a carrier pigeon or more code, but it's still a form of communication. Even the questions this generation asks and think are so profound, they've all been asked before, every one of them. The conflicts that we're having today that we think we cannot overcome, we've all been had before. Just look back to the 60s. I wasn't around then, just to make some of you feel old. There is nothing new under the sun. And that's where the secular worldview takes this and is like, again, okay, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no day but today. But that's the very idea that the preacher is arguing against. Yes, life is a vapor. We realize this probably need to realize it more than we do, but that doesn't mean your life has to be meaningless. It doesn't matter if your name is remembered. Most of our names will not be remembered, but what does matter is the type of legacy that we leave. That's the question. How are we to live lives of meaning and value in a world of repetition? Well, that's the question this series is going to unpack and answer over the next 10 weeks. Not going to unpack it all today, but it all starts by learning to live life in reverse. Living with a mindset that isn't held captive by the horizons of this world, but by looking to the one who created the sun and the earth and everything within to find our meaning. That's point number three. Life lived in reverse is the beginning of a meaningful life. Which means what exactly? What do I mean by living a life in reverse? Well, it starts with realizing that all of our lives... Are going to end at some point I'm not again I'm not trying to be morbid I'm trying to be real like all of our lives are going to end at some point unless Christ returns first rich or poor educated uneducated the same ending awaits all of us all the exercise and healthy diets in the world may prolong one's life a few extra years but then if that is the case, the question is, are those extra years being used in a meaningful way or are, they just, or, or are they just prolonging a meaningless life? See, the preacher wants we as his listeners to hear these words of wisdom, to embrace them, and then live the lives we've been given, however long that we have, with the understanding it's a vapor, it's breath. We have been given a blink in eternity that's it a breath a breath says the preacher all is a breath so how do we make every breath count well turn with me again to the end of the book chapter 12 verse 13 chapter 12 verse 13 where he tells us after going through his entire 12 chapters comes to the end And he says, the end of the matter, verse 13, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Meaning, friends, our our sole responsibility In the breath that we have been given is to fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You know who I think about when I read this? Of course, I know that I'm to be thinking about myself. I know this to be introspective. I do think about us as a congregation. But biblically speaking, when I read Ecclesiastes, the Apostle Paul has always come to my mind. And here's why because prior to coming to faith in Christ Paul believed himself to believe in God. He was a very religious man. By all accounts was faithful and doing his best to keep the commandments, to keep the law. But his life was lived under the sun as meaningless. Nothing more than a chasing after the wind and all that he did. But then he came to faith in Christ. I Meaning he believed the good news of the gospel. He truly believed that Jesus Christ lived the life under the law that he was supposed to live. That Jesus died the death that he deserved to die. And in rising from the grave gave him a hope and a future. He did not deserve to have. And at the same time, he was given the ability to do what he could never do before. To understand what he could never understand before. See, in that moment, he knew and believed that the death that awaited him, the same death that awaits every single one of us, was swallowed up in victory at the cross the one whom all things, including the sun and everything under the sun, were spoken into existence through, Jesus, now gave his life meaning. So no longer striving to keep God's commandments in an attempt to earn God's favor. Oh, no. No longer chasing after the wind, but living life meaningfully in response to the love of Christ that had been lavished upon him living life in response to the new life that he had been given. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, you can make your way there if you would like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read verse 57 now, and we'll get to verse 58 here in a moment. But he says in verse 57 of chapter 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word of praise from Paul for the victory that is found in Christ. A victory that reminds us that that death isn't the end of the believer's story. Which is why Paul, when rejoicing in the new and meaningful life that he has in Christ, he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. In the Lord, your work, your life is not meaningless as he is the one who gives it meaning. And the how is what we're going to unpack again over the next 10 weeks of this series. But to get us started, he surrounds us, each and every one of us, with our concentric circles of influence. Full of purpose and meaning. So that we can be faithful to his commandments. Commandments summed up how? To love God and to love people. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love the neighbor as our self. How do we do this best? Thinking about loving our neighbor. Living life under the horizons of this sun for a meaningful way. How do, how do we do that Yes, we can meet tangible needs, things that are good. We need to feed the hungry and care for the poor and care for the sick and immigrants and orphans and all of those things. But we also are to open our mouths and point people to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. And we point them to the foolishness of God. Sounds odd, right? Right? We point them to the foolishness of God that is wiser than man. And what, my friends, is the foolishness of God? The cross of Christ. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is what? The power of God. Foolishness to a world living life under the sun. Ah, but to we who are perishing. It is the power of God. We are being saved. It is the power of God. And a meaningful life gives everything to this end. Hear me again. A meaningful life gives everything to this end. Our our time, our treasures, our our talents, everything, because it's all a breath. Just consider a portion of a poem written by a British missionary, C.T. Studd. I've edited it for brevity's sake. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when it lasts, I'll hear the call. I'll know, I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be. If the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Church, that is my prayer for each and every one of us. That the lamp of our life will be burnt out for thee. To be burnt out for Christ. And the smoke that lingers goes up and lingers for a bit and then is gone like a vapor. However long our smoke lasts, that it will cling to those around us. It's a lasting aroma. You know when you go into the closet and that sweater that you wore, that coat you wore, that fleece that you wore the past fall at a campfire and you pull it out It's been in the closet for a year, right? But you pull it out and you can still smell that smoke because it actually never got washed. I pray that we will be a lasting aroma that will last longer than any fire that we live here on this earth. Where our names will be forgotten, but Christ, the one whom all things were created through and for, will be glorified. It's the only thing that will last In 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year and a life? You ask, was it lived for Christ? If not, it's one more precious breath wasted. And friends, I don't want to waste any more breaths, they're passing too quickly. So I ask you this morning, how will you, how will we as a church respond to the wisdom of God's word? Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is a fitting reminder to recognize that life is a vapor. It is a breath. But it is also a gift. And for we who are in Christ, for we who have been saved by your grace, may we live every moment of our life in faithful obedience to you. And in praying that, and I realize from myself to all of us, we, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we will continue. But your word tells us very clearly that anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar. Oh, Lord, may we be repentant sinners. Sinners who are continually turning away from our sin and looking to follow Christ. To grow in godliness. Not so we can just live in some holy huddle, but that we can be salt and light to the world. That we can be a fragrant aroma to those who are perishing. Oh, may they know Christ crucified and may they hear through our words and our witness. Oh, Lord, may we not waste a moment in the time that we have left. May we live it all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing the song that we learned earlier once again in response to the preaching of God's Word.